Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Few of us know that The Wizard of Oz was originally an allegory for the American populist movement of the late 19th century. The writer, Frank Baum, was a very progressive leftist. Who knew? During the time when he wrote the book, around the turn of the, uh, around 1900, um, there were, had been a lot of depressions that caused a lot of suffering for the working class due to the fact, and this is hard to conceive of today, but the U.S. banks would only print money when they had purchased gold. If there wasn't any gold, they couldn't print money. So when there were gold shortages, guess what? There was money shortages. When there was money shortages, there wouldn't be any investment and the money would be generally hoarded by the rich. So Frank Baum believed that the uh, banks should be able to print far more money to help the economy. And rather than banks only buying uh, or leveraging the dollar to gold, that they should also be able to buy silver and print money from buying silver and other metals. Now, in the original story of The Wizard of Oz, Dor Dorothy doesn't wear ruby red shoes. She wears silver shoes. And in the story, the wicked witch and the wizard, the wicked witch being the Republican candidate at the time, William McKinley, and the wizard being the president at the time, Grover Cleveland, stole her silver shoes to prevent... The pop, Dorothy represents the working class, the honest American virtues, and her two friends, the Scarecrow, which represents the farmers, and the Tin Man, which represents the factory workers, decide to follow the yellow brick road, which is the gold standard, to go to the Emerald City, which was Washington, D.C., and to actually convince the president to buy silver. This is literally why Frank Baum wrote the book, to create an allegory for the monetary populace. And it was actually not written for children. It was written for adults. But the interesting point is in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy sees that behind the curtain, uh, there is this small little guy who's manipulating all of the land by presenting this image of this all-powerful figure which controls everything. And that was Baum's way of saying that people should pull aside the delusion that it was foisting this sort of belief in the gold standard and that if you pulled aside the curtain, you saw the truth, the manipulative machinations of the uh, powers in this case, uh, uh, Grover Cleveland was <clears throat> president, so he was represented by the wizard. Now, years later, there was a, another great example 
There's a movie called uh, They Live by John Carpenter. Um, they Live, if you haven't seen it, it's a way over the top movie. It's, a very, it's the very definition of B movie, low budget. Uh, in it, <clears throat> a fellow named Nada, N-A-D-A, and that gives you a hint about his existence, is a wandering guy without any meaning in life, and he comes into possession a pair of sunglasses that when you put them on reveals the concealed truths of the world. And when you look, put these glasses on, and you look at advertisements that are like beautiful beaches or sunsets or couples together in color, then Everything in the world is stripped to black and white, and all the advertisements simply really say are now white with big black lettering saying, buy, consume, don't think. So everything in reality, when you don't have the glasses on, looks wonderful and convincing and alluring. But when you put on the glasses, you see that it's this really monochromatic, stark reality that's based on greed and based on subduing any independent thought. And the best part is all the people who are wealthy, when he puts on the glasses, are revealed to be these skeletal alien figures, for, you know, wearing these death faces from another planet. And they are manipulating us through this illusion that the world is this really nice place. But in fact, it's this kind of dark, uh, you know, it's concealing something really quite nefarious. So fighting the rich <laughs> becomes not as gives his life meaning, and then, of course, naturally, because it's a B-movie, he gets a shotgun and starts blowing everybody away. Um, the uh, Matrix, I'm sure you've heard of that one. That's probably the most familiar to uh, us in contemporary life. It's uh, the epical moment in that film is when, uh, what's his name, Neo? Neo? Neo is, uh, Neo is uh, presented with the option of taking the red or the blue pill. The blue pill which allows them to live a conformist, comfortable uh, life in a complete delusion, a fabrication, foisted upon, the ma foisted upon us by the Matrix, which are essentially a bunch of supercomputers. Or he can actually take the red pill and see the truth which is, in fact, we have been conquered. Our, the human race has been enslaved, and we are living in pods, and our energy is being used to keep the com supercomputers running. Um, I would have made the Matrix kind of the epicenter of tonight's, uh, this part of tonight's talk, but unfortunately, the fucking... Uh, right-wing white nationalist movements has claimed the red pill metaphor. So I can't really talk about it, even though it was such a great uh, metaphor. Um, there are many, many other, many, many other themes that are similar to this. 
great science fiction writers like Philip K. Dick, and I have, uh, I'm sorry, Time Out of Joint, his book, where reality is manufactured to conceal the darkness that we are, in fact, being manipulated by powers of B. Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream. Again, the same solipsistic. We are stuck in this grand delusion. We could trace it further back to Bertolt Breck, who wrote The Three Penny Opera, which was an unmasking of popular operas and plays of the time where Beck pulls them aside and reveals the machinations that or the the drive the popular plays and reveals them to conceal um, from a, a socialist perspective that they're all essentially naturalizing and normalizing capitalism. That all the plays and dramas we like are simply ways to naturalize capitalism. And that was his, the point of his work. And then we can go even further back to figures like the great Schopenhauer who said, all the world is a mask, uh, representation that conceals this will, this simple cutthroat, competitive drive to simply survive. And that is what all human niceties in the veneer of, of society conceals. So uh, that's certainly one dominant theme that when you pull aside uh, the manufactured and, or the shared delusion of the world, what, you, what civility obscures is either uh, a cutthroat craving or just something that's really dark and uh, painful to observe. Now there's another dominant myth that's uh, throughout many Vedic and Hindu spiritual faiths that uh, is taught about what happens when you pull aside the delusion that we uh, apparently live in. This is Indra's net, and the idea in Vedic religions and religions that derive from Vedic myths, such as um, uh, not only Hinduism but Brahmism and Jainism, and to a degree even Buddhism, uh, is that uh, reality is essentially like this big net that's cast out in all directions. And each intersection of the net, there's this beautiful glistening jewel. And so there are billions upon countless billions of these jewels. But if you look at any single jewel, it contains the reflection of every other jewel in the net. And if you plucked one jewel from the net, the entire net would fall apart. So the idea is that... Um, the whole doesn't owe its existence to all these separate little parts, but rather uh, the whole is the necessary creation of each individual part. Each individual part reflects the whole, and to change any part changes the whole. And so there's this idea in that when you pull aside especially this comes into play with our, our sense of having an individual, unique, separate self. 
in many Vedic religions, Jainism, Hinduism, the unique separate identity that we all believe in is a mask that conceals beneath it a uh, much deeper universal self that reflects everybody else's truths so that we are in no way completely unique or separate. Buddhism has a slightly different take on it, but this is another dominant theme that we see in uh, culture as what we find when we pull aside the, um, the shroud that conceals some underlying truth. So what is it that the Buddha taught? Well, interestingly, there's a lot of similar themes. In fact, it shouldn't be so interesting because, of course, um, there's a lot of truth to those themes that we've discussed. Um, the Buddha, on his awakening, when he looked around him, he said he saw everybody running around like their hair was on fire, propelled by greed, looking for short-term pleasures to help them repress or not feel all of the painful feelings that happen in life. Uh, in the Atadanda Sutta, he said, when I saw the truth, I saw that people everywhere were competing with each other like fish in a puddle, and it was terrifying. Every place I saw was insecure, and every place was in turmoil. I, like everyone, wanted to find a safe place, but I saw for the first time that in this world there is no safe place. And that all of this craving for safety was futile. So basically what he sees is people trying to attain some kind of protection or security, uh, some kind of advantage by accumulating, amassing wealth, amassing approval from others, amassing... Uh, objects, amassing, whatever. But he saw for the first time that there wasn't anything that could protect us or provide us with a kind of, that kind of security that we were hoping for. Um, the Buddha also saw that what we are most running from was something that we don't like to think about, which was the first noble truth of old age, sickness, death, the inevitability of loss and disconnection from people we love. Um, in the Sukhamala Sutta, the Buddha said, before my enlightenment, I, I owned three palaces, one for each season. I was entertained. I was endowed with great fortunes and refinements. But then the stark realization occurred. I am like every other being, subject to aging, sickness, and death. Yet I live in such a way that these inevitabilities I cannot face and cause in me disgust. So even though the Buddha realizes that he, like everyone else, will grow old, will sicken, and die, he realizes that all of his life he's been running from that truth, and that his world, the riches, the opulence, the refinements, the minstrels, the performers, the hired help, has been placed there to keep him from seeing the stark truth that is actually going to, uh, in many ways, define our lives. It's what we do, the choices we make when we realize 
we are going to die, that we are subject to illness, that give our life any meaning. So until we do come to face that, until we have a reflection or an awareness of death, our lives are delusional and meaningless from this perspective. And then finally, in this, uh, before I go into the, the last one, there's uh, the Buddha's insight of itipakiyata, which is interrelatedness. Just like Indra's net, where all the jewels reflect each other and all the individual parts are in some way connected to the whole and every other part, the Buddha taught that all things appear and exist due to their relatedness with each other. That all things arise in what he calls conditioned. So, conditions and causes. So, for example, um, a flower just doesn't arise because of a seed and some water. It also arises because of soil, because of weather, because of sunshine, because of all the other factors. And if you change any dominant factor, it won't arise. So in many ways, the flower is the expression of the entire ecosystem in which it grows. It cannot be in any way thought of as separate or different. Finally, here's where I get to the great Buddhist insight that is shared nowhere else. So the Buddha's was unique in that he saw three other things that we really don't see in many examples elsewhere. In fact, I was hard-pressed to find any. The Buddha's insight was that when one closely observes any experience long enough, what is revealed is a profound emptiness. That if we constantly, for example, look for a self or a soul, but we observe our internal experience long enough, we find that our experience is constantly changing. Our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our body sensations, our consciousness, the way we perceive the world, it's all constantly in flux. Therefore, observing, trying to find some true core me, some true self, some underlying identity that gives my life a common thread or a lasting soul, all it reveals is constant change without any lasting foundation. And in Buddhist lingo, this is called emptiness. Constant change, no home base, no resting place that is more real, more me than any other state. <clears throat> when we observe ourselves, we find that it's this ongoing river of experience without any uh, epicenter, without any uh, core trait. We do, of course, have tendencies, but these tendencies, even if we observe them really closely, we see that each time they arise, they're slightly different. Somebody might feel, well, I'm depressed or anxious by nature. That certainly defines who I am. Or I've got OCD. But if they observe their depression, their anxiety, their 
their symptoms or whatever they latch onto for identity closely enough over time, they find that each particular moment, the expression of that tendency is different. Their depression one day might be more physical, the next day it might be more obsessive thoughts, the third day it might be anhedonia, lack of joy or excitement in life. So there's no core there either. From this realization, if one observes that closely enough, there's nothing even worth grasping onto, to clinging to in the world. This idea that there's some object, some place, something that we can latch onto that can make us happy, knowing that there's no lasting true nature of ourself and knowing that all things are subject to having over time to create different feelings. For example, we might find ourselves in a place where we hate where we live. The roommate we live in is irritating. They don't pick up their towels. They, uh, they have a girlfriend or boyfriend that stays there all the time. Whatever. So you want to move. So you look for another place and you believe, when I get to that next place, life is going to be great. When I get that next job, when I get married, when I get divorced, life is going to get be great. And then, of course, you get to that place where, you, where we think, oh, things will be better. And, of course, three, three weeks later, we've got new problems, new issues, the joy of buying the iPad or the the new gadget or winding up in the new job or living in the new city or traveling to Machu Picchu, it all eventually, it doesn't last. Nothing lasts. Therefore, the idea of clinging onto something like it can bring us lasting peace of mind is uh, futile. So, when people hear this, they think that, that this is depressing. Really? There's nothing I can get or hold on to that's going to make life, you know, better, you know, significantly? But actually, the whole point of this releasing of uh, striving is to actually offer us something so much better in the sense that when we stop striving, believing that there's something that we don't have that we have to attain that will uh, make life better, that will make our existence truly happy, when we pull aside that delusion, what is revealed is this profoundly varied, wonderful, unique never-to-be-repeated moment that we're living in right now, which will never, ever happen again, which is filled with profound sensations, uh, experiences, emotions. All of it is flying by, and yet this right now is absolutely the one time in our life that we can truly arrive and appreciate our existence.
because there is no other time other than right now to do that. The removal of craving is the great delusion, craving for something that has solidity, that can transform us, that can give us inoculation from pain, that can save us from old age, sickness, death, loss. When we let go of that craving and we realize that there's nothing we can cling on to, the only thing we can really is our relationships with people we love. We can cherish them while we have them. We can cherish the physiological sensations, the degree of consciousness, the degree of uh, clarity, the degree of insight and compassion and wisdom that we've accumulated. And we can truly put them all into play in this moment. But that only comes from letting go of all of the craving that's been animating our lives. When we let go of wanting there to be anything more, when we let go of that they live type delusion that tells us to shop, consume, buy, run, accumulate, then we truly can have that great moment of liberation. That's why in the Buddhist teaching, liberation comes from, in the Third Noble Truth, letting go finally of striving or trying to, to uh, live for a future moment in time. Trying to live for something that we don't have. Anything that tells us that there's something missing from our lives is preventing us from embracing our life right now. So, that is what it is. Hey, I hope there was something interesting in there somewhere. And now we get to meditate. So find a really comfortable position. And we're going to be playing with the themes in tonight's talk and the meditation. So closing the eyes and come to a really comfortable seated position. And just take a moment to gently tilt your head a little bit. Well, lift your chin a little bit slightly more than you normally would to prevent your head from slouching in front of your chest. That's pretty much the most important thing you can do when you meditate in an upright position is just to put the effort in just in the area of your head to keep your head from falling in front of your chest. And then just let the rest of your body Fully relax, and we'll do some breaths that will uh, inaugurate this practice together. So take a nice, complete in-breath through the nose, and while you do so, lift your shoulders, if you like, up, and just hold them up. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop your shoulders. 
and gently pull them slightly back so that you open up your chest, make a nice, a lot of room for breathing, and then take another full, complete in-breath and pull in your abdomen, holding it in tight, and then breathing out through the mouth, softening the belly, just trying to establish a really soft, pliant area to receive again the breath. The chest and the the belly are the two most central areas to in the body to establish in the mind a sense of security. This is not based on any Buddhist mythology. It's actually using science, the uh, vagal vagus nerve. The more you relax your belly and your chest, you're sending a message to your midbrain saying, I'm safe. Long, or I should say complete in-breaths and long out-breaths. So for our third breath in the series, we'll squinch the muscles in our face, making pinched ugly faces, locking the jaw, and then breathe out through the mouth and soften the muscles in the face. Relax the micro-muscles around the eyes. Allow your jaw to slacken. Unfurrow the brow, as it were. Let's just spread some ease around the rest of the body. So, feeling the palm of your left hand, and generally the palm of the left hand is relaxed. And just spread that ease up the arm, into the forearm, and into the chest. And then find the sensations of the right palm. Spread the soothing, easeful feelings, if there are any there, up through the hand, up into the arm, past the elbow, to the forearm, up. the shoulder, when you breathe, see if you can almost feel the energy moving up the spine, crescendoing in the head, and as you breathe out, release the energy all the way down the body, relaxing, and then down the buttocks, down the legs. The energy goes out the soles of the feet into the ground.
And now we've begun to relax the body, let's relax the mind. Try to bring into memory what it feels like to be at one of your favorite places in the world. A place you go for refuge. Not that it there's, as the Buddha said, any truly safe place, but where do you feel the most relaxed? And then, what's it like to be there on that beach, in that mountain, cabin, in that park? Wherever it is, you get to a state of being where you're not worried about anything in the future, you're not making any plans, you get there and you stop obsessing about conflicts at work or dramas amongst friends or relational issues or family issues. You get there and you really don't want to be anywhere else. There's nothing missing. Life is complete. Letting go of any craving for this moment to be different in any way. What do you have right now? is the only way this moment could possibly be given all that has happened. And embracing this moment exactly as it is without wishing we could change a thing. Saying yes to the pleasant sensations, perhaps the breeze that might be entering the room or the areas of ease in the body saying yes to the difficult sensations, any pain you might feel in the body, any anxiousness or tiredness, any strain, just saying yes, you're part of this moment just as much as the easy, welcomed sensations. So let's spend some time in silence just trying to truly embrace our life as it is right now. Each time you abandon this moment by thinking about something that isn't present, whether it's about something in the past or something that could happen in the future, just gently put it aside, that thought. Welcoming that experience of awakening from a virtual, the virtual reality of a thought and embracing a little awakening where you return to life as it actually is. The delusion is the thought, the story that we add. The truth is the physical sensations, 
the sensations of life right now without adding anything to it.
So for the second part, we can also train awareness to begin to see the truth behind all the stuff we add to the world, we add to experience, the thinking, and the thinking generally is keeping us in these stories about all we need to accomplish, all we need to accumulate, all we need to get done. So that thinking is in essence the greatest delusion at times that keeps us from seeing the real truth of our lives, seeing when there's suffering, seeing when there's joy, seeing when there's connection, seeing when there's abundance. The story we add obscures the real true conditions of our life. So in this practice, see how long we can deepen into being aware without adding any thought. Now one way you can do this is as you breathe in, just think in, and when you breathe out, think out. Eventually, after a couple of breaths, those words will not be thoughts anymore, they'll just be sounds in the mind. An old example of this is while you breathe in, think the word bud, beauty, and then when you breathe out, da, d-h-a, buddha, Another way to do this is when you breathe in, hear the sounds and sensations of the left side of the body. As you breathe out, the sounds and sensations of the right side of the body. What we're trying to do is train the mind to be able to put aside all of the inner chatter obsessive ideation that we add on top of life as a scrim, a veil, that prevents us from seeing sometimes the most crucial truths that we overlook in our lives.
what is it that is there right before us that all of the inner chatter is obscuring? Am I happy now? Frustrated, angry, disappointed, exhausted, energized. So in a moment I'm going to bring the bowl. When you hear the sound, try to open your eyes as slowly as you possibly can, looking at the ground first, and try to integrate sight into your awareness in such a way that it doesn't obscure the feelings, the sensations, the sounds, all the other aspects of life you might have connected with at some point during your meditation. Mm -hmm. 